All right. Um, first, first of all, welcome, uh, everyone. It's great to have you tonight. Uh, I'm uh, Bernard Liotto, the managing partner of, of Balderton. And um, we're really excited and honored to have uh, Martin uh, Mikos here with us tonight. Uh, Martin is an extraordinary entrepreneur who has uh, done a number of extraordinary things in his career. And so uh, we're very pleased to have him. Uh, I've had the, the great fortune to meet Martin uh, a long time ago, I think probably in 2004, I think was the, uh, the start as um, I was at that time the CEO of a software company called Business Objects. Uh, and I had um, gotten to know the folks at uh, Benchmark, uh, Benchmark in the US and Benchmark in, in Europe. And if my recollection is, is correct, at the time there was a big fight between uh, Benchmark and uh, Kleiner to try to win over Martin and to uh, do the investment in, in MySQL. And, uh, and at the time, uh, uh, Kleiner was, uh, actually had, had done a good job at, uh, at, at promoting you know, what they, they were able to do. And so uh, Benchmark wanted to have someone on the, uh, on the entrepreneurial side from Europe to help them and so together, uh, I had I had I met uh, Martin, and we got along quite well. And then uh, Benchmark at that time, uh, thanks to the combination of U.S. and Europe, uh, managed to win the deal. And then I ended up, uh, therefore, sitting on the board of of MySQL for the following four years. Uh, for me, I mean, as a CEO of Business Objects, it was it was great because I was part of sort of the old world where we were selling, you know, um, on-premise license, uh, big ticket items with maintenance, and Martin was coming with something completely different, uh, uh, very radically different with an open source model. And I want to learn about, about all this, so I had a, a great uh, learning experience for four years with, with Martin, uh, Martin and, and the whole team uh, growing and, and having this incredible success. Uh, Martin has done a lot of other things uh, after, but um, so I'll ask you first, uh, Martin. So first of all, thank you for, for coming. It's great to have you. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about um, your experience at, at MySQL because uh, there's a, I think there's a number of folks here who come from the open source world and uh, it's always a big challenge to see can, can we build an open source company uh, that is successful, and obviously you were very successful there, but maybe give us a few, maybe sort of the milestones and a few learnings from that particular experience. Right, I'd be happy to, <clears throat> and good to be here tonight. Uh, I joined uh, MySQL as CEO in 2001. I knew the founders since many, many years, and I don't think they knew anybody else who had ever been a CEO of anything, so they called me when they needed one. <laughs> that was my qualification. And, and we started building it and building a business. And I think now when I look at it afterwards that actually it's part of a bigger trend that's happening in society, that many good things in society start by being uh, used and employed only by a small exclusive team. And then at some point it gets democratized. And we see this over and over again, like if you, in the large a scheme of things, you could say that reading and writing used to be the privilege of monks and priests. And then Gutenberg invented the printing press and suddenly he democratized it to everybody. 
and there was huge opposition by those who, who wrote books by hand because they thought this was the worst thing that could ever happen. And then we came and did the same to software with open source, where software had been a privilege of very, very few, very orthodox people who overcharged for their closed source software, including business objects, which had great software, but... We did with a lot of pleasure for 18 years. <laughs> it worked. The thing is, it works. But our model works. I mean, we had average deal sizes of 12,000 euros at MySQL, and business objects must have had 120,000, I could imagine. But there's this democratization process that happens, and it unleashes so much energy when you do it. And in the database world, you may not know it, but before MySQL, to, to get access to using a database, you needed permission from a DBA. If you were a software developer, you had to call the DBA and argue that you should get access to one of the few central databases. And you will laugh at it now, but that's how the world worked. worked. And we came in and democratized it and made it available to everybody. And I think this trend is happening, can happen in many industries. And we are now doing it at HackerOne, where security used to be a privilege of the few. And they create all this terminology that's very confusing for everybody else. In fact, it's confusing for themselves. And they build this orthodoxy of sort of priesthood and monks that dress in a certain way and have their own liturgy. And it's all just to create an appearance of complexity when in reality you can, make, you can simplify it, democratize it, bring it out to everybody. Like uh, has been done with airlines, Virgin and EasyJet took, took uh, the airline industry and did that to them. So the whole notion of democratizing opportunity is just a massive opportunity for a lot of industries. And we happen to do it in databases because my college buddy Monty had developed a database product. But but it was part of a bigger shift that happens over and over again in a lot of, of, of different areas. And, and the business opportunities are amazing, but you must be uh, half fearless and half stupid to do it because you must go against all traditional rules. You must say, I'm ready to do this at tenth of the price or a hundredth of the price. I'm ready to do it without all the protections and guarantees that the old world had. So you must really be a sort of a rebel and a Robin Hood to, to have the courage to, to democratize everything. So Martin, uh, this is, a, this is a, uh, an important thing. So when you build a software company, you still have, and when you start an open source, you have to start selling something to your customers. You still have the same cost base of another enterprise software company, you still have to sell, so you have to have salespeople and so on. So how do you make a business out of that knowing that a lot of the customers use your software without paying anything, and when you sell them something, you sell it at a fraction of your competitors? And so how do you, and these competitors, yeah, they enjoy some good margins, but what was the, uh, how did you make it work so that at MySQL you could actually build a good business it was difficult, and of course, the, the revenue numbers were never as high as for the other database companies. Like we always said, we're here to disrupt Oracle, but even today, the total revenues for MySQL-based businesses in the world is hundreds of millions, maybe 500 if you count everything together, and the, the, the revenues of the Oracle database business is probably still 5 billion. So 
<laughs> but it still is very profitable as such. But, but we focused so much on removing friction, making sure there was no friction in selling and no friction in buying, and then refusing to do certain things. Like customers would come to us and say, oh, we, we are interested in your database. Could you come in and spend five days with us figuring out what database we need? And we would say, no, we won't. Uh, because that would have cost us too much given the low, low price we, we charged. And then we developed very actively a volume-based sales model, inside sales, online sales, really focusing on it. I mean, this, this was a company that... When, I, uh, when we were acquired by Sun Microsystems in 2008, we were doing about 70,000 product downloads per day from our website. So we got 70,000 IP addresses every day on seeing who was downloading our product. We collected 25,000 email addresses per week. So the whole lead gen uh, was really based on high numbers. And our average uh, sales cycle was I forget what it was, 45 days maybe or something. I remember we, we, we had monthly quotas at, and sort of operated sales on a monthly basis. And I was studying all these statistics every night. I mean, I love looking at data. And then I came up with a, a prediction rule for where the month sales would end. And I called it uh, uh, my 8 by 8 rule. On the eighth day of the month, I would take the, the current sales number and multiply it by eight. And that was pretty much what we would do that, that month. And it all was based on the fact that there were so many deals and so small that even if each single deal was unpredictable, it became predictable uh, at scale. And, and then the, the business just grew, grew very, very well. But we had to always think about the cheapest way of selling, simplifying the contract, simplifying uh, selling, simplifying the argument, simplifying everything, and saying no to a lot of, of RFI, RFP work that traditional customers wanted us to do. It's, it's really interesting and, and to know that MySQL was, and, and Martin, you were the, one of the pioneers of the way software is being sold right now. I mean, right now you see a lot of companies, even if they're not open source, that the SaaS companies that target you know small and medium-sized companies uh, quite often, they have a high-velocity model. They sell actually average deal size sometimes at 5k, yeah, uh, 7k, and they manage to make a good business out of it. It was unthinkable uh, in, in my time. Uh, I remember when I first met a, a venture capitalist said, "Well, if you cannot sell for anything less than 60k, then you cannot build a profitable business ever." And now you see that you know it's it's it works much better because you can build uh, you know businesses that acquire customers at a much faster speed. But at the time, I think you were one of the first ones to actually make it happen. So tell us maybe on uh, still on MySQL um, something that may be of interest for for the people who are building businesses here. Uh, this is a business that started here in Europe, uh, but you made made it successful in the US, you moved yourself to California. Uh, what was it like? What were the challenges that you, uh, you met and uh, how did you uh, overcome them? You won't like the answer, but the, the truthful answer is we didn't have challenges with that. <laughs> and I know it's difficult to, to succeed in Silicon Valley and succeed in the US. 
that was never our problem. Even before I joined MySQL, when I, w I was employee number 14, I think, but even before that, MySQL's biggest customers were in the US. And somehow, from Finland and Sweden, the founders managed to strike deals with them. And when I came on board, we always had our mind on the US. It was always the case. So, so then two years later, when I moved to Silicon Valley, because Benchmark Capital invested, and then Bernard came on the board, it, we arrived as heroes. We had so many customers. I, I went to, a, I met with Eric Schmidt of Google. He invited me to, because they were using MySQL. So I walked into the meeting and I thought, okay, this is CEO to CEO. We will talk business and stuff. And he, we sat down and says, okay, Martin, tell me about the, about the newest features. I'm like, oops. <laughs> Fortunately, I had a co-founder with me, so we could go very deep. Uh, <clears throat> But at the end of the meeting, Eric Schmidt said, okay, Martin, how can we help MySQL? We love this stuff, how can we help you? And I said, okay, you have two options. Either you give us a lot of money or you give us a lot of publicity. You choose. And then Eric Schmidt said, okay, I'll do the cheaper alternative. But it, it absolutely worked because I went to the Always On conference and there was an evening reception with hundreds of people. I walk into the reception, Eric Schmidt sees me and then he yells at me and says, Martin, so good to see you. I love, we love MySQL. Okay, if, if the CEO of Google says that to you in public, suddenly you, everybody accepts you. So we really, it was really, that was not the challenge. But, but I do think that, that we had the right mindset from, even from our, our modest beginnings in Scandinavia, we always had this fast-moving internet in our minds, and we didn't get stuck in any old-fashioned anything. We really had this disruptive mindset. The founders had it, I had it, and we embraced it from the beginning. We, we just said, fuck this to such so much that traditional companies do. But if we had followed the, whatever was available then to European startups, we would have failed. If we had taken government subsidies in Scandinavia, we could have failed. If we had started to go to the CBIT exhibition in Hannover and spent years there trying to sell, we would have failed. But we didn't. We, we, we intentionally didn't focus on that, but we, we somehow knew that the, the target market was web companies. And back then and still today, most of them were Silicon Valley based. So, so I think our founders got it early on and, and we continued on that. So, so when I came to the US, it was a little bit like coming home because we had truly created that culture from the beginning. Some, somehow, I don't know, it wasn't a decision, it just so happened. And one thing that you did really, really well is to hire a great team. No, I mean, uh, around you were, were people who uh, were really amazing folks, uh, both on sales, marketing. Obviously, you had the, the core engineering talent uh, from, from day one. But that, I think, is something that really helped you uh, managing this, this bicultural element, in my view. Yeah, so that, maybe that was difficult. I came to the US, and then the first thing was to hire a head of marketing. And I... Like, I had never hired a VP of anything. I've never worked with headhunters. I, I sort of knew inside me that I'm going to hire somebody who is much, much better than I am, but still I need to be the CEO. So it was sort of a funny exercise. And then I, I created my own sort of psychological test. <laughs> so different questions where I said, okay, on this 
sort of X, Y, where are you? I asked all the candidates. There was all energy and drive and whatever, delivering results. And there was one guy who put himself always up in the top right corner and outside of it. And we hired him. There was Zach. <laughs> and, and he was fantastic. But it, it was, now when I look at it, I'm just laughing at sort of how naive I was in doing it. But, but also there, there was such a strong drive so our headhunters had found a lot of candidates, but the one we hired, Zach Urlocker, he had found us. And this is what you find in Silicon Valley. People there say, okay, open source will be a big thing. I need to go to an open source company. So then they scan all the open source company and they find one which seems to be looking or needing a VP of marketing. So they contact the company and say, okay, can I talk to you? That doesn't really happen here on this continent. But there, the, the concentration of these risk takers and bold movers is so high that it could happen. And that's how Zach came to us and we hired him. And then before he even joined, we took him to a leadership offsite that was so bad that he nearly resigned before he joined because we had a conflict between the founder and me and between the head of sales and the CFO and the whole it was supposed to be a planning offsite and we got nothing done. Fortunately, Zach didn't give up at that first terrible experience. So tell us maybe at uh, the end of the journey of, of MySQL, you ended up uh, selling the company to Sun for a very large amount of money. You were one of the very first unicorns coming from, from Europe, if not the first one. Um, tell us about that decision and, um, and what led, you, led to it. Yeah, we, we did sell... Uh, MySQL to Sun Microsystems for exactly one billion dollars. So one and nine zeros in February 2009. And, and it, it was amazing, everything that came out of it. But it, it was never really our plan. We, we built, built the business, we had this very strong sense of independence and we were preparing to go public. We're still a Swedish corporation. But we had worked on being ready to make a flip. So we had spent, I think, $3 million on doing auditing all books from whenever to be ready to sweep over, flip over to US corporation. We had selected bankers. We had written the S1. So we were really ready to start going public. In 2007, we had 74 million in sales that year. But then in the background, since 2005, Oracle had been interested in us forever. They always came to us uh, sort of asking if we might be interested. And I, I, felt, I felt we had to play a little bit of a sort of Scheherazade game with them that I couldn't say no to Oracle because then they might get upset and try to kill us and I didn't want to say yes to them because then we would get acquired. So every time they came to us, we told a new story and we kept prolonging the discussion but they started giving real, real bids for the company. And then suddenly Sun came out of nowhere, set up a dinner with us and, and said, we would love to acquire the company. And then I called back and said, okay, we are actually planning to go public, but if you really, really are interested, we actually have an, a, an offer from another interested party, which is close to a billion and, and we are going to go public very soon. So there isn't much time. And then Sun, called back and said, we'll pay you exactly a billion and we'll move fast. And that's, that's how it happened. It wasn't that 
easy. It's the magic of Silicon Valley, right? <laughs> the magic of Silicon Valley. It was just crazy. Uh, but it was really a hard decision for me because then, again, I, I, I was the hired CEO at the company. I wasn't the founder. You know, it wasn't, I, I didn't send, I wasn't a shareholder. I was an option holder in the company. So the whole decision to sell, I was sort of thinking, okay, the board will decide. Bernard and Kevin, all those guys, they will know what to do here. So I'm, I'm just running the business. But again, this is Silicon Valley. So the board looks at me and says, Martin, what do you want to do? And I wasn't ready for that. And they said, if you want to keep running the business, we will say no to the offer. And we knew that this offer was enormously uh, sort of valuable and great. We would get one billion in cash for a company that did 74 million in sales. So that's just enormous. But they were really, uh, Kevin Harvey of Benchmark and Danny Reimer of Index, they said, we will do whatever you recommend. If you want to keep running the business, we will be ready to say no. We will even buy some of your shares now for that price so that you can buy yourself a house finally and get your own economy sort of safe. So it really put the decision back with the management team and me. And that was a hard decision process to go through. Okay, what have I promised all the people I've recruited? Because we really had an amazing team. And what have I told customers? And what have I told partners? And what sort of, what will... What will my relatives think? And what will I think? And what will my children? You go through all these terrible scenarios of how it will play out if you choose one or the other. So it was, it was really taxing on me to come to a conclusion. And then at, at some point I realized, okay, it is best to sell. And we said, I do recommend we sell. And then we did it super, super fast. Uh, it was amazing how fast Sun could move. We agreed on the price on the 20th or 19th of December and on the 15th of January we signed the deal and announced it a day later at the MySQL uh, uh, all hands meeting in Orlando. So it was went super fast and Sun was fantastic at this. They'd handled that very well and the integration they handled wonderfully. The press has written differently but it's not true. Sun was really amazing at, at, at taking care of us. So, uh, so that's the MySQL's journey, which was uh, quite incredible. And by the way, it, uh, you know, Martin makes it feel or look very easy and straightforward. <laughs> it wasn't. Uh, I think uh, the team had to overcome a lot of challenges uh, throughout the, the process. Uh, one of, of them it was Oracle, you know, buying your one core piece of underlying technology of MySQL at the, at the last minute, uh, the storage engine, which was a, an, but the way you handle it was quite incredible. We won't go into this because that would take us, uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, ups and downs, but I think uh, it was extraordinary how you managed it. Tell us maybe a little bit about the next stage, uh, what you did afterwards. Uh, you, you ran that company, Eucalyptus, and then, uh, and then we can talk about the, your next company and why you're here. Right, so, so then at Sun I ran the, the database business, the database division at Sun, uh, but I also then realized that I, I had joined Sun in the hope of helping to resurrect the company. So not just running MySQL, but helping Sun become great again. But Sun wasn't interested in that, so I said, okay, then you don't need me here. So I left and then I joined a new startup called Eucalyptus Systems, which 
built an open source private cloud stack, essentially. And they said, Martin, you know open source, you know everything, come and build this. This, is, this will be bigger than MySQL. Um, now my guess is that not everybody here has heard of Eucalyptus, so it obviously didn't get that far. That turned out to be really hard software. Uh, value proposition was unclear, timing was wrong. That company struggled so much. It's amazing that we survived. But we just decided to never give up. And we had to tell us this many, many times. We will not give up. We went from 90 employees down to 30 to preserve cash. And then we just wrote it out. We got the software in shape. We got the value proposition in shape. We started winning deals. And then Hewlett Packard came around and said, that's a wonderful company you're building. Can we acquire it? And we said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and so we got acquired by HP, and, and the software has done very well as part of HP's cloud story. And cloud, uh, in, HP's of course, has, HP has a lot of products, but doing really well. And one of the largest private clouds in the world uh, runs on, is completely Eucalyptus run today. And the, the value proposition of Eucalyptus was to build a private cloud that is API compatible with AWS, so you can move workloads back and forth which is a very strong value proposition. Somehow the world didn't completely need it back then. But anyhow, so that happened so that we got the company in fantastic shape. We came into HP and I ran the cloud business unit of HP for a while and left when, when HP split in two, uh, into HP and HP Inc. And then I joined the company I'm now CEO of. All right, so tell us more about, about uh, the company, what it does, and then you're here to start uh, HackerOne UK, right? Yes, yes, we're opening our, our, the HackerOne sales office in the UK now. Uh, we have a WeWork space here, and we have a first sales director hired. So, this is not an open source company, but it is the same thinking again. HackerOne does to security what MySQL did to closed source databases meaning we are democratizing it, we are opening it up. What we do is we are a marketplace for bug bounty programs. So take Uber, they are running a bug bounty program, they ask hackers to find flaws in their live software, and when they find it, Uber will pay a bounty, a reward to the hacker. And Uber has paid $860,000 in the past year to hackers through us. So we are the marketplace between those two. Uh, we have over 100,000 hackers in the world working for us as independent uh, agents of their own and 800 customers, including Uber, Twitter, Yelp, Slack, Snapchat, GitHub, Pornhub, General Motors, Starbucks, uh, Zendesk, Zenefits, Cloudflare, New Relic, Lufthansa, and a bunch of, of customers are running it. And it's, it turns out that in security, which is an $80 billion market a year, it, security is the new marketing, meaning half of the spend is wasted, we just don't know which half. Uh, but with our model, customers pay only for results. You pay when you get a valid vulnerability report, and if you don't get one, you don't pay anything. So when Uber is paying 860000 they know that they have improved their security and prevented criminal hackers from, from hacking them. We also run uh, Hack the Pentagon, so Pentagon, the US Department of Defense, handpicked us to run their program. Uh, we ran Hack the Army, we hacked the Army in five minutes, and we are now on a long-term contract with the Department of Defense. And all of this is based on 
individual security researchers, aka hackers, ethical hackers, white hat hackers, who will work through our platform to help people find their flaws. And it's just an amazingly productive model. It's 10 times more effective price-wise and otherwise than any other method. But of course, companies must have the courage to say, tell me what's wrong with me. And that's for some human beings and for some companies a very difficult statement to make. But when you do it, you will actually be much more uh, secure. So now, now we're doing sort of the, the MySQL thing, but in security. So do you target customers or is any company or you, what is the, the sweet spot? Uh, we started with the power users, cloud companies who were born online and software, but actually anybody who develops and deploys software. So we now have General Motors, we have Starbucks, we have the Wi-Fi enabled Barbie doll is on our program. We have, uh, we have Intel, Qualcomm. So anybody who is, who is software powered, because the moment you put software in production, you have an attack surface that criminal hackers can attack, and they will. And the on, it turns out that the only way to find the vulnerabilities is to ask human beings to look for them. You can build all your automatic scanners you like and QA stuff and blah, blah, blah. You can never find all the vulnerabilities unless you employ the exact same resource that created the vulnerabilities, meaning human beings. So it's, that's what we do. So any, any company that's dependent on software, that develops and deploys software, will ultimately need us. We now have 800 customers. I'm hoping to grow it to 8,000 customers, and then 80,000 customers, and then, then, then it will be a market. So Martin, uh, what drives you? I mean, you, you've, you've done MySQL. You've been uh, extraordinarily successful there. Um, normal path would have been you know, to be a venture capitalist or some kind of job like this. I, I asked you once, you told me that you had no interest whatsoever of doing this job, that you wanted to continue to build and run companies, um, but you could have, have stopped doing that uh, a while ago. So what, what is your motivation there? Well, I'm, I don't know anything about finances and I don't want to be a, a venture capitalist, so I have to do something else. And then I'm, I'm not social enough to hang out on a beach all the time and just spend time with people. I need something to do. So I, I just enjoy doing it. And, um, and I, a drug for me is getting something done with a team. And, and, and sort of getting somewhere, having a victory, small or large, any victory, and, and then doing a high five. And, and you can't do high fives on your own. You have to do it with a team. So you must have a team and then you do something. And it just feels, it feels really, really good. And, and at Eucalyptus, which at some point should have gone under, but it didn't, we were so proud that we rescued it. And then at, uh, if it, and when things go well, you feel so good about all the, all the stuff that you're producing. So I don't know. That's what I like to do. Excellent. Well, well, we'll open it up to questions now. So, who is one? Yeah, please. Curiosity. Is my SQL in the Acker One program? And uh, if yes, how is it performing? Oh, do we have MySQL on Hacker One's program? Uh, no, we don't. Uh, Oracle right. has a different view on security. Mm -hmm. And they have a, a CISO, a Chief Information Security Officer called Marian Davidson, who sort of has spoken up against all the principles we stand for 
openness, democracy, and all of that. So I'm not sure it would happen. But, but also, our best target customers are uh, the application level security, whereas MySQL is infrastructure security, which where security issues are of slightly different type. Meaning most of the, the vulnerabilities we find are higher up anyhow in the application layer, in the APIs. So we don't have too many of, on the infrastructure side. But of course, we'll take them any day. Um, hi, uh, Rags Gupta. Um, I was just curious if, because I guess the theme of this is a bit on, also on the sales side. So just curious on, on, on the go-to-market. Um, because it, it sounds like it's probably quite different from MySQL my, uh, to HackerOne. Because um, I'm guessing you don't have necessarily the inside sales model at HackerOne. Um, but I don't know. But, but more broadly, um, the, the, you know, the different sales motions, if you will. And um, the second question is, have you been able to actually, you know, have you operated where you've had multiple sales motions for the same, at the same company, right? So you know, big ticket deals, outside sales force, as well as inside sales? And uh, that, best practices yeah, that you have. That's a great question. First of all, sales is the key to everything fun. Sales will forgive all your mistakes. So if you are entrepreneurs, make sure you, your sales is growing. And if you're ever wondering why the board is complaining about something, whatever they say, they're complaining about sales. <laughs> whatever they say. And when sales is going well, they will complain about nothing, even when you screw up everything. So, and, and this, so many startups don't realize it. You, you must grow sales long before you are ready for it. And you need to do sales even when you're ashamed of it. And you need to ask for prices that you didn't think you could. And if you don't do that, you're toast, you're done. So make sure you focus much more on sales than anybody is telling you to do because it will forgive so many mistakes, and you are going to make mistakes. At, at HackerOne, we do have an inside sales model. Interestingly, we are, both the hacker side and the customer side is power law distributed. And we had the same at MySQL, that the, the difference between a big customer and a small one is enormous. Our biggest customers spend $1 million a year on HackerOne, like Uber and uh, a number of others. Our smallest customers spend zero. And even if you take them away, say, okay, that's some sort of community thing. Even those who pay, the smallest pay maybe 5,000 a year. So we have to manage a customer base that may spend 5,000 a year or a million a year. So, so it's very important in everything we do that we understand the difference between because, because their lifetime value is so different. To get Uber to be a customer, we will do anything. And we did. We changed our roadmap, we developed features, we had people working with them, and it still is very, very profitable. And then these $5,000 startups who sign up, like you all should do, uh, of course, we will have no time to serve you as long as you spend just 5000 You need to spend much more for us to, to do it. So, so sales at HackerOne, we, we have nearly all sales is inside sales. Like we closed Lufthansa in January. We closed it in two or three months. We never visited them in Germany. I don't even think we spoke a word of German. Uh, we got the deal done. Uh, they launched in January. Within 24 hours, we found the first bug and reported it to them, and they paid the hacker, Franz Rosen in Stockholm, um, 500,000 mileage points as a reward. 
but it shows that, that we deal with even conservative established customers on an inside model. Now we've just split it up, so we, we have a, one team dealing with customers with less than a thousand employees, another team dealing with those who have more than a thousand employees. Then we have a list of top target customers where we give love at all levels where I'm involved. Uh, then we have, are going to build out a federal sales operation, which will be different. So yeah, we will, we will do all of those. But the basic value proposition and everything is essentially the same. And, and we try, we always focus on velocity of sales. That's more important than deal size. Our fastest deal so far, from opportunity to close, can you guess? I, I can tell you that our average uh, is 44 days, but what's our fastest? Three hours. Yes, <laughs> two hours, 40 minutes. There was a startup that came in in the morning and said, we need a bug bounty program, and two hours, 40 minutes later, we had closed the deal. So, so you, and I think in today's world where so much is exponential, you have to get used to power law distributions of many things. In the traditional world, you'd focus on just one segment. But most business today, you, you can't do that. You have, to, you have to have the flexibility and fluidity to operate across the whole range. And then you always be attuned to how much you can invest. Because the big customers are worth everything and the small ones are worth nothing. And then sometimes you have a big customer who first comes in at the zero dollar or zero euro or pound level but you know that they can suddenly jump to start paying a million a year, so you have to sort of identify them early on. And I think that's part of the success formula. Sorry, do you worry about the lack of focus in, in splitting markets rather than focusing on only big or only small? I always worry about lack of focus because that's a problem I have with myself. <laughs> I get interested in everything. <clears throat> but that's, that's why at One we talk about it. When we, when we discuss something, we say, let's remember, this is power law distributed. Which segment are we now talking about? And when we review a plan, we say, okay, for whom is this? And, and that helps us then be more focused. But of course, it requires sort of an intellectual agility of, of the employees, that they can't just be robots executing something. They must always think about where it falls. And sometimes we make mistakes, and then we miss some deal or something, or or we serve a cheap customer, give them too much because we didn't realize how small they were. But I think you can learn it. Well, too much if, if, the, if, they, if the annual spend of a customer with us is $5,000, then the lifetime value is roughly $5,000. And then if we give them one day of help, then we've burned that money. So that is not a scalable business. So you have, you have to make sure it's scalable and that the unit economics are right. It's okay to, especially in Silicon Valley, to burn a lot of VC money because the VCs have so much money. Uh, but, but you must get unit economics right so that when it, when it starts spinning on its own, the unit economics work. Then you can burn a lot of building the stuff, but, but it must at some point become a, a profitable business. And I think a great example of this is Amazon's bookstore. We don't remember anymore, but Amazon started selling books online. Yes, physical books. Did, how much cash did they burn through before it became profitable? How much? Quite a lot, yes. Uh, I remember there was 2.6 billion in accumulated losses before they 
increase the prices enough to be profitable. And then they got the unit economics right. So I think Jeff Bezos probably had discussions on unit economics with his board and his investors because he said, just be calm, we will have good unit economics at scale. But they burned through 2.6 billion getting there and everybody is happy. So in small scale that applies to us, that we can burn through a lot of cash getting there, but once we come out of it, the unit economics must be so strong that over time they repay any, any accumulated losses. Uh, hello there, James Hardley, Immersive Labs. I'm part of the Cylon cohort this year. Um, the question I've got is if you've built up a company and it's your baby and your CEO and you've got your team and you're in charge and you can take them away and do all these amazing high fives, when that IPO, when the acquisition comes in and you're now somewhat an employee of another company, how do you keep the drive and focus without going, oh, I'm not the boss anymore and I want to leave? It was less of a problem than we had thought. I always tell myself, I keep telling myself all kinds of things, but one thing I tell myself is, it's, I should be passionate, but I should never become sentimental. And it has helped me, because I try not to be sentimental. If the best for the business is to sell to some microsystems, we will do so. And when we got acquired, I told everybody in the company that we are here to do what's best for the enterprise. And we had said that always, because I'm a Druckerist, and Peter Drucker said that's what you need to do. So, at my scale, we always asked what's best for the enterprise. And when we got acquired by Sun, I said, now we, the enterprise is Sun Microsystems. And I specifically told that we now must do what's best for Sun, not what's best for, for MySQL. And I said, if one of us now gets promoted or moved into another division of Sun, then we should celebrate it, because it means we are being relevant to the broader company. And, and by saying that, it actually removed most of the problems. And we felt, coming on board, that we were there to make Sun a great company again. So, so it worked reasonably well. And, and I, for myself, it gives me huge sort of rewards. Now, as I look at the, the MySQL operation inside Oracle, you know, I haven't been there since 2009, so eight years. But it is run, the whole business is run by Richard Mason, who we hired into MySQL as European head of sales. The engineering is run by Thomas Olin, who we hired in 2003. And the team is intact. They have the same culture, they have the same email lists with fun and humor and all this. All these traditions we had, they still have in the team and it's executing the way we built it. So, so then I'm thinking it is fulfilling its purpose. It's operating exactly as it should. It just has a new owner, but the, the essence of MySQL is still there. Hi, I'm Anatoly Lebedev, uh, CEO of Cisanta. We're doing an open source um, operating system. So I just wanted to step back to MySQL times. And um, if you can tell a bit more in the way you can about the sales uh, model journey and how you kind of started and how you nailed it down to the fact that you made 74 million a year. Um, yeah, the sales model. Originally at MySQL, we had one revenue model and then we shifted to the other one. We were one of the early ones to do what was called dual licensing, which was invented by the guys at GhostScript. They came up with it, where the GPL license says that you must share and share alike. Meaning if you ship some software that's built on MySQL, that software must also be open. 
But if you don't want to make your own software open, then pay us money and we will issue you a commercial license, essentially an, a pardoning letter saying, okay, you are not bound by the reciprocity requirement. And that was our business model for the first years, and it still is, but it, it has, it's not as prominent anymore. But, but when I moved to the US and we hired this guy, Zach, in marketing, and also people on our board started saying, this, this won't scale forever. The new world is different and we need to come up with some annuity and some subscription and we started talking about that. We started talking about it in 2004. In 2005 we copied Red Hat and launched something called MySQL Network, which was a subscription service that you paid monthly or annually. And then we developed that model so that today if you go to Oracle and you're a paying customer, it is typically a subscription model. You get the product for free, but you pay for the support, for some extra tools, and for the on ongoing care and updates from, from Oracle. So, so the revenue model shifted over time. Sales-wise, it was, it was mostly an inside model. We called some reps field reps, but they didn't really physically visit customers that often because it wasn't needed. Whenever, wherever we sold, everybody knew the product already. You know, we spoke to some CIOs who said, no, we don't want MySQL here. And we said, but we have, we have seen that you've downloaded it 17,000 times in your company. <laughs> and, and then they already had all the skill and everything. So it was just a question of closing the deal. Um, but we, we did, we innovated around pricing. Like we came up with an idea that we, we called MySQL Unlimited, which became a fantastic success. At the time, Oracle Enterprise Edition on one CPU or one processor core, one or the other, cost $40,000. Just Oracle Enterprise Edition on one CPU, and you can't run it on one CPU, but the unit price was $40,000. So we went out and said, here is MySQL Unlimited. You can deploy, my, deploy MySQL on any number of servers for $40,000 a year. And it was a fantastic marketing success because everybody loved the comparison to Oracle and we sold a ton of it and of course then we snuck in some extra conditions saying oh yeah the 40,000 is actually for small companies and large companies pay 250,000 <laughs> <laughs> and, and then it was a great great business but it was difficult internally because the, our technical support team said no we can never do this we will drown in support requests if you sell an unlimited uh, service, we, can't, we can never handle it. And we had to just break that resistance down. We had just said, okay, we hear you, but we are doing it anyhow. By the way, talking about great team, this whole idea of MySQL Unlimited was invented by our general counsel. Clint Smith was the one who came up with the idea. So when you have a really great team, you get business benefit from everybody in the team. And the one in charge of legal affairs is more than just in charge of legal affairs. Um, hey, I'm Phoebe um, from Broly, an insurance startup. Um, so you mentioned going from, say, 800 companies to 8,000 to 800,000. I don't know what time period that's over. <laughs> um, so what I'm interested in is, um, sort of from a practical perspective, how do you build, focus, and um, drive your sales teams as individuals, so are they set very clear targets and are you measuring them based on the velocity or is it quality of customers that they're bringing in? So how, how do you scale that quickly and um, you know, how, how do you manage that, that process? 
Yeah, now you should ask Marjorie, who is our head of sales. She's just amazing. Uh, we hired her to Hacker One in April of last year, and we essentially had no salespeople. And he, she immediately started hiring them and built a very structured process for sales. And now we have maybe 25 people in sales, and and being extremely regimented. And and this is something people don't think about that in a startup. It's usually people think that the engineers are the, that's sort of the hard work and that's the grind and that's what, what in a startup. But it's not true. It's sales, which is it. Sales, there's an everyday discipline. It's all about numbers. It's all about execution. Engineering is much more creative and difficult to measure and it's more, it's art and science at the same time. But when you do sales, it's mostly science. And, and we have hired relatively a junior salespeople who are in the early years because we don't want those who have been brainwashed in the wrong way by other vendors. So we take those who are still ready to learn, they come up to speed very quickly. They start closing deals within four to six weeks. And we have a pretty complex offering, but it somehow works. And then they have quotas and they have very strict goals on what they need to do. They do pipeline generation themselves, so they have to make cold calls and Marjorie is watching over them all the time and making sure that they do that. And they love it because they're also successful. But when you watch that machine, it's just amazing how they sort of repeat and come up with a very clear sales model. How do you do a discovery call? What are the questions you ask? And then boom, 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 they, they close the deals. Angus, okay. just maybe before, just to, uh, you, I'll, I'll let you ask your question. I just wanted to, to emphasize what you just said. I mean, this is something that, uh, to me, is still a very big difference between the U.S. and Europe. And the U.S. have developed a, a real science around around sales, and they they develop very very precise, rigorous metrics, but rigorous way to monitor how it's going. Uh, Mark, who is uh, your VP of Sales, Mark Burton, was um, was coming from Informatica first, so he was VP of Sales there, then became VP of Sales of MySQL. Afterwards, now he is doing board, but he also is he's doing counseling and consulting around sales methodology and and the amount of um, the granularity to which he goes, I think is uh, is quite remarkable. So that's something that we. And you, all of you, when you think about developing your companies, you should really spend a lot of time on this. This is uh, very often you see the companies who start here and get to the U.S. and don't really make it in the U.S. Quite often it's because they come with the um, belief that because the product is so good, they're going to crush everybody in the U.S. You know, ah, you know, product so much better, of course. And you realize that the success is... is Martin said very well, success is all about sales and marketing. And so if you, and, and a lot of the very big successes in the US didn't have the best products. Oracle didn't have the best product to begin with. They, are, they, they had competitors who, were, who had a much better uh, solution, but they had an amazing sales engine. So we need to continue to develop uh, that, that DNA. Hey Martin, hey, it's Angus Manivan. Um, you say you have 800 clients and you've got 100,000 hackers in your site. So there's quite a sort of imbalance between the amount of clients you have and obviously the amount of hackers you have. And I was kind of saying, how do you keep these 100,000 hackers sort of happy and not hacked off, excuse the pun? Um, 
if you're only finding a number of uh, number of bugs for your 800 clients, it's very true. We have too many hackers. Yeah. We have oversupply. When, when I joined uh, nearly one and a half years ago, we had 18,000 hackers, and now we have over 100,000. And it's it's far too many than we need. But and that's why we focus on sales. We decided that our company. We're called Hacker One, not Customer One. So we say, okay, we're Hacker One, we're about the hackers, we need to do the best for the hackers. And we ask the hackers, say, what would you like? Would you like new features in the platform? Say, no, just give us more work. So that's why we are scaling sales so rapidly to get many, many more customers. But then the 100,000 is power law distributed again. So, so it's important to know that in the 100,000 are a lot of people who are just signing up just to testing it out. Some people have two accounts. So it's not like there are 100,000 active hackers. It, it's, a very, it's like a sports league where everybody may play football after school in their backyard or something, but very few become a Pelé or whoever, or Beckham or something. And it's the same in our space, that the, the top segment of our hackers, they stand for the majority of all good vulnerabilities. But there are many, many wannabes who are learning and learning. Like I just met this 13-year-old guy from Karachi in Pakistan who was visiting San Francisco. He's 13 and he is on Hacker One every single day. He has risen now, when you come in you get 100 points. We, we, collect, we track a reputation score which sort of is a measure of productivity and skill. And you, get, you start at 100. For every report you send in, you get positive or negative score. If you send in a bad report, it will give you a negative score. So you come in at 100. He's now at 600, which is reasonably good. Our best hackers are at 18,000 points today. So. Yeah, David Beckham is getting richer all the time. And, and what is the effect on boys and girls who like football? They all play more. They all want to be a Beckham. They all want to be a Beckham. They all want to be a Beckham. The more the top guy gets, the more everybody else will want to do it. I don't know. It's working in sports, it's working in our business. Our best paid hacker is uh, Mark Litchfield, a Scotsman who lives in Las Vegas where you don't pay tax. He has made over $600,000 on our platform alone. The fact that he exists and that he allows us to tell this number to everybody is what draws all the others into the platform and will always do so. Thank you, uh, Graham Cook, uh, Qubit, and um, in the science of selling, which I think is uh, you know an, an incredibly uh, skilled art, what would you say are the most important formulas to apply to the business to make sure you talked about velocity? What would you say are your top three most important formula to, for a very successful uh, sales organization? Uh, I've stopped believing these top three anything. I think any success has about a thousand criteria you must get right over time. Uh, when it comes to sales, there must be a value proposition and a product market fit that works. You must have competitive differentiation, because if you don't, you have no pricing power. Uh, and then you, mu you must reduce all friction. You must make it easy for customers to understand what you do. And that is very difficult for, for companies, because they are so 
into their own stuff that they think it's easy to understand, but it isn't. And especially our market where we talk about bug bounty programs, but the technical term for what we do is vulnerability disclosure program. That's too much of a word monster. And even vulnerability is a word monster. Nobody wants to use it. So you have to simplify it so people can understand what it is, understand how it works. And, and we spend a lot of time on that. And then the, the qualification of leads, because it's power law distributed, there's a lot of noise and you have to find signal. So you must ask qualifying questions early on. Uh, so that's important. And then you must also temper what, you, what the salespeople are doing. There's some things you shouldn't say too early. Like we have an ability to customize our platform for a customer. And we tell our salespeople, never mention that. Because the moment you say, and we can customize it, what you're essentially saying is, our product is not ready. So don't say it. Sure, we can customize, but don't ever say it because it sounds like the product isn't ready. So we spend a lot of, spend a lot of time and attention on the exact wording we use for expressing things and how we present it. And then when you start selling, do you start high and go lower, do you start low and go higher? Um, do you start with selling a pilot because that's what they will be buying? Or do you start by selling an annual program because that's what you would like them to buy? So a lot of that we're experimenting and doing a bit. Well, depending, if you land and expand means start low and go higher. But traditional selling says start high and then go lower. So which one is it? And then you have, when you combine all those questions, you suddenly have a thousand success criteria and you need to get every single one of them right. Not immediately, but, but as soon as you can. Well, Martin, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. I mean, obviously, you have an amazing experience and it was great that you shared all your, your insights. So we have drinks and little things to, to eat. You'll stay around a little bit with us. So if you want to have a more private conversation with Martin, uh, we have still a bit of time. So thanks, everyone. And thank you, Martin. Thank you, Bernard.